Thank you so much uh, for being here this morning. My name is Carlos, and I'm one of the pastors here at Reality Church. Excuse me. Uh, if this is your first time visiting, I want you to know um, <clears throat> that we started this church. And part of the reason we started it is because we wanted to open up a space for people to be able to ask difficult questions. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we say this almost every week. This is a safe place for you to be able to explore faith and the claims of Jesus. And my hope is not only that you would get to explore the claims of Jesus, but if you've been following him for some time, is that you would grow in Jesus. Part of the way that we grow is we look at the scriptures today because it's our two-year anniversary. Two years? Let's go. Praise Jesus. <clears throat> it's our two-year anniversary. Therefore, we're reading 21 verses, okay? <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy anniversary, man. I, I want to thank, uh, be, right before we start, uh, of course the church is built by Jesus Christ. And <clears throat> check this out. The church is not built on the talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. And I want to thank our leaders. I want to thank our leadership team. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for the blood, sweat, and tears that you've poured out, even so that we could be in this place. But a big shout out really. Um, to, uh, to our leadership team. I'm so grateful for them, for Pastor Gus, Barbie, for Jordan, for Sarah, who started this journey with us, for Panos, uh, and of course, for my wife, okay? Um, Cassandra Lolet, for um, Connie. Anyways, it's beginning to sound like an Oscar speech. I don't want it to be that way, okay? So, um, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to come up on the screen. And uh, we read here, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. <coughs> now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners <clears throat> of Jerusalem. As he traveled there was near, and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. <coughs> Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing nobody. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, and they led him into Damascus. He was enabled to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Verse 13, Lord Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, <clears throat> something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. And then finally, verse 21. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? This is the word of the Lord. You know, um, I once heard one of my favorite authors talk about how that famous storyteller and writer C.S. Lewis came to know Jesus. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he wrote what? Chronicles of Narnia. That's right. And mere Christianity too. That's right. But right now, you know, I, I, I want to go earlier in his life because see, check this out. Um, he was getting ahead of me, man. No. Um, here's what happens with Lewis. Earlier in his life, he writes a letter to one of his friends. He was an atheist. And he says this. I believe in no religion. Religions are mythologies invented to meet our emotional needs. This is still a pretty common view today, isn't it? Maybe that's how you walked in here today. You feel like religion is maybe something that is helpful in your quest towards happiness, or so you've read maybe in a Harvard Business Review article, but you don't really believe that Christianity may be true. However, here's what happens in Lewis's life. He becomes a professor at Oxford where he meets and he befriends another great storyteller, a man by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, who writes, not Star Wars, Lord of the... Come up for prayer afterwards at the end of the service, dude. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not offended. Lord of the Rings, it came out a long time ago, man. Um, that was somebody from Gen Z, FYI, by the way. And so um, here, here's what happens with Tolkien, not George Lucas. It's um, um, Tolkien was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to Christianity. Uh, to, to actually, to Jesus. Once they were walking around this river around the university, Tolkien begins to have this conversation with C.S. Lewis about the nature of what he calls, and I want you to remember this, secondary belief. Secondary belief. For Tolkien, primary belief is when you hear a story and it's true. It's not, it's a nonfiction story. That's primary belief belief. This is exactly what happened. Kind of like journalism, this is what took place in a particular place. But secondary belief is what would happen when a fiction author would write a story with characters that were so compelling and a plot and a storyline that would draw you in. 
And even though you knew that this story was fictional, you would like feel afraid when the character was afraid. Or you would feel joy when the character fell joy because the story was just so powerful. There was something about the story that just kind of drew you in. It's like there was an underlying reality under this particular story. The story commands, what Tolkien says, is secondary belief. Now, he says that this kind of story, even though we live in a really scientific time, and a cultural time where reality is just kind of what's in front of you and what you can see, hear, smell, and touch. He says that human beings still crave a particular kind of story. And we pay money to watch these kinds of movies and to read these kinds of books and to watch these kinds of shows. The kind of stories that we crave oftentimes are of a perfect place of an idyllic place, sometimes a supernatural place where love lasts forever, where love conquers death, where there is heroic sacrifice, where you can experience victory being snatched out of the jaws of defeat. This is the kind of story that many of us desire, that we pay money uh, for. Tolkien says that these are fairy stories that point out these human longings. We desire these kinds of stories, and they point to a secondary belief. It's like these stories, they have a way of saying, you know what, somehow, some way, this world is accessible to you. There's a way towards this world. Now, Tolkien also says to Lewis, hey, we're made in the image of God, but we have sinned, and we know for a fact as human beings, right, We know what's true. We know reality is that, hey, suffering still exists. And that sometimes evil triumphs over good. And that even you may love somebody so deeply, but at some point in your life, you are going to lose them. But what he says to Lewis is this, but there's something in our hearts that when we hear the power of a story, this secondary belief, something tells us like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not meant to die. Love should conquer death. Love should last forever. We shouldn't lose the ones that we love. Suffering should not be the final answer. Victory should take place out of the jaws of defeat. We feel like there's this reality that ought to take place, and we find this reality oftentimes in these kinds of stories. And Tolkien says, even though these fairy stories aren't real, some people find truth in them because there seems to be some underlying reality, like somehow there are certain things about the story that must be true. So Lewis is confronted by this, but he still says to Tolkien, he says this, fairy tales are lies. Even though breathed through silver, as beautiful as they are, they are just lies. And Tolkien says this to him, he says, no, no, watch this. He says, look at the gospel. Look at the story of Jesus. Do you know what you have there? Do you know what you have in the gospel? You have a story where there's an escape from death. You have a story where love conquers death, where good triumphs over evil, where in the darkest day on the cross, when everything has seemed to fall away, in the darkest moment, actually, victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, and Jesus rises on the third day. 
and he conquers death and sin so that we might experience everlasting love and life. Jesus is alive, and so he tells them the gospel. Watch this. This is, I, I know it's a long story, so you following me? Yeah. Here's where he goes. The gospel is not just another wonderful story pointing to this secondary reality. What Tolkien tells them is the gospel is the story to which every other story points to. This is the story that is real that all of these fictional stories actually point to and the reason you can know that is because of the resurrection you can know that because there was an event in history that changed humanity forever the reason we're here is because jesus is alive because he rose again on the third day this is what changed history this is what gave us a portal and access to be able to experience this kind of life that we long for a life where love conquers death, where one day we will see those whom we love, where one day we can actually experience no suffering and no pain because of the work of Jesus Christ in our life. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, here's what I want to encourage you with. Uh, listen, sometimes God won't answer all of your questions. The main question that you must answer, I think that you must wrestle with is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he alive? Listen, you can have questions about the Bible and questions about dinosaurs and questions about science and theology and all of these different things that you can wrestle with in life. You can, but listen, the main question, if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, is this, did Jesus rise from the dead? Here's what Tolkien writes. He says, there is no tale ever told that men would rather find was truer than Jesus' life and none with so many skeptical men who have accepted as true on its own merits. Eventually, Lewis, who was an atheist and a scholar, encounters the reality of Jesus and he becomes one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the 20th century. How did it happen? It's because when you encounter the risen Jesus, he changes you forever. When you encounter the resurrected Jesus, you are forever changed. That's what happens to Saul in Acts chapter nine. Saul of Tarsus, or his Greek name, Paul, he is the most important figure in the New Testament outside of Jesus. He encounters the risen Christ here on this road to Damascus. And he experiences what Christians call conversion. He becomes converted into Christianity. Do you know what conversion is? Conversion is the most fundamental change that can happen in a person's life. The reason why the church expanded in the first century was because there were people who encountered the risen Jesus and they were converted from the inside out. And even though they didn't have any kind of political power, they experienced the power of the spirit and Christianity spread all over the world. It wasn't just because they had an intellectual ascent of who Jesus was. It was because they were transformed from the inside out. And that's so important for you and me. 
It's so critical for us to think about that because there's at least three kinds of people in this room. There are those of you who have met the risen Jesus and you have experienced conversion like Saul. There are others of you who may be kicking the tires and exploring Christianity and you are not converted. And there are others, a third group of people, that you think you have experienced conversion, but you haven't. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at the pattern that Paul lays out here in Acts chapter 9 to understand what are the marks of conversion. In fact, you know what he says in 1 Timothy? This is what he writes. Look at this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, in Paul, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. He's an example. The conversion story of Paul, in the, by the way, in, in the Greek text, that word for example is the word for sketch. It, it's a pattern. In other words, his life and his conversion story is actually a pattern of how conversion happens in people's lives. So how does it happen? What does it mean to be converted to Christianity? What are the marks of conversion? I want to give you a couple here from this text. Number one, how are you transformed into Jesus? Number one, you have to have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. You have to have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. I want you to think about this for a moment. Saul was a moral man. He was a spiritual man. He was a, a man who was disciplined, a member of a class of people called the Pharisees. He was a religious human being. He was industrious. He was a man who had faith in his religion. He had faith in his religion. Sometimes people will say, hey, you know what? Whatever you believe, it's okay as long as you believe it with all your heart. Right? When you look at the scripture, that's wrong. Here's why. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, you know what? Two ice skaters went out to, um, <laughs> went out to um, skate on a particular lake. And one ice skater was full of faith, and she went to skate on an ice rink that had a half an inch of ice. And she was like, man, I have faith that this ice is going to hold me up. I'm just going to go out there and have an amazing time. There was another skater. She went out, and she started skating on a lake that had four inches of ice, but she was scared. She was like, I don't know if this ice is going to hold me up. I don't know if I should go out there. Should I? And she, was, she goes out, and she begins to skate. Well, guess what? Two ice skaters went out. One of them died and drowned. Who drowned? The one full of faith or the one who didn't have faith? Actually, it was the one with faith. Because what saves you is not the amount of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith. Amen. You see, what saved her was not the fact that she was skating, right? That, that, that she had just all this faith in this half-inch thick ice. No. It was the object, right? It's what we put our faith in that saves you. That's why what you believe matters. Is it true or is it not true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? It doesn't matter if you're sincere in your belief. What matters is if it's actually true. Saul was angry. He was breathing out, the text says, anger. He was a violent Man, imagine how hard it was for a Jewish man like himself to experience conversion and to follow 
Jesus. You know what Saul needed? He didn't need a great argument. He needed an encounter. And what you and I need, if we're going to trust in Christ, it's not a great argument. We need an encounter with the risen Jesus. Because if you can be argued into Christianity, then guess what? You could be argued out of it. You don't need an argument. What you need is an encounter with the risen Christ. So look at what we read here. As he traveled, was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. In other words, I am alive. I am risen. You got to remember, Saul already knew the story of, of, of God. He had heard Stephen talk about it in Acts chapter 7. In fact, Paul authorized his killing. He had already probably heard it from Peter in Acts chapter 2. He had heard that thousands of people had come to know Jesus and were converted. Saul had heard the story of God, but actually he now comes to know God personally because Christianity at the end of the day is personal. Jesus is a person. We have a relationship with him. So what does that mean for you and me? Does it mean that we need to be riding on a horse? And we need to have some sort of blinding light hit us. You said, Carlos, is, you know, Paul is an example. Is it a pattern? You know, do I need to hear an audible voice, be blinded, and hear like, why are you persecuting me? Huh? No, that's not the point. It's a pattern. It's a sketch. It's an example. What you need is an encounter. And how does Jesus reveal himself to us oftentimes? I want to give you a couple of ideas. Number one, he reveals himself to us in the word. You can hear thousands of Christians over time hearing how when they started reading the Gospels, they encountered the presence of Christ, that suddenly Jesus became real to them. He can do it through other people, amen? When people preach the Gospel to you, when they share what Jesus has done in their life, somehow that has a way of opening up our hearts. It can happen during worship. When you're singing about the truths of God and suddenly the Holy Spirit opens up your heart, so that you can find your way in him. Sometimes God does it miraculously. There's different ways in which God reveals himself to humanity, but the important part is this, that if you're going to experience conversion, listen, you need an encounter with the risen Jesus. Has that happened to you? Has Jesus ever become real to you? Not just an idea, not just a concept, not just a thought, but do you have a personal relationship with him? That's a mark of conversion, but there's a second one. Look. When you come to know Jesus, you realize, okay, that God has been working all along. You become aware of his work. You become aware of the fingerprints of God in the story of your life. Did you know that the story of Saul is so important in, in the book of Acts and so important in his life, you see it all over the scriptures, that it's written in three places in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 9. It's in Acts chapter 22. And it's in Acts chapter 26. And in each of these stories, we get some bits and pieces, some more details about what took place in that encounter with Jesus. For instance, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 14, look, you're going to see it on the screen. Saul is saying, hey, we all fell to the ground, which by the way proves that this wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't just like Saul in a trance in the middle of the heat, okay? Everybody fell to the ground. Everybody saw what was happening. There were witnesses around Paul, and they all heard this voice. They didn't know what it means. God chose to reveal himself to Saul, right? Here's what happens. 
He hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I had to look this up, right? What are goads? Anybody know? Goads. Praise God, she knows. That's incredible. Goads. We got a smart, we got a smart people here today. Goads are sticks that are sharpened by shepherds to prod against stubborn animals. So God is saying to Paul, you've been kicking against my prodding. You know what Saul realizes? This isn't just God suddenly meeting Saul for the first time. There are fingerprints in the background. There's ways in which God has been working in the story of his life. He's been drawing him. He's goading him. There's been some pain. The reason Paul is violent, the reason why he's angry is because God has already been at work in his heart. I love this quote by Augustine. He says this, we love the truth when it enlightens us, but hate it when it convicts us. <laughs> Think about everything that Paul has worked for in his life. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment or his sandals. He's tried to live this perfect, ultra-disciplined life. He has memorized the Torah. Can you imagine memorizing the Old Testament? He's memorized it. He's done all of these things, but at some level, he knows it's not working. He hasn't had a relationship with God. He cannot earn his way toward God because of his good deeds. It doesn't work that way. All of that effort to get to God, all of that resume, all of that status that he has built up, all of that work to be in the Sanhedrin, to be in that leadership, to be with the Pharisees. And guess what? When he encounters Jesus, when he hears the message, none of that matters. And so he hears about these uneducated fishermen preaching and thousands of people coming to follow Jesus. He's like, no way. How can that happen? And he hears about how Jesus welcomes sinners to the table and prostitutes and beggars, what kind of God is this? And so he becomes angry because all of this is working against what he actually believed, what he worked towards. And sometimes that's what God will do, right? He will goad you, right? He will use the goad in order to lead you to him. Isn't it true that sometimes the difficulties of life, they actually, they point towards the fact that God is doing something on us? He will do something to mess with our hearts, to actually draw us to him, that perhaps maybe you're here, and the reason you're angry when you hear about the story of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the exclusivity of Jesus is because there's something in you that is actually resisting him. You don't want to work towards him. You want to just be in control of your life. Is that you? Are you resisting, right, the goad, the suffering that maybe Jesus has put in your life so that he will draw you back to him. Remember, conversion doesn't just happen in a moment. Yes, you can come to trust and know the work of Jesus, but what you realize in the story of Saul is that God has actually been working a long time. Have you experienced that? When you meet with people that, may, that meet Jesus, you know what they'll say? He's like, you know, man, I didn't realize that God has been doing all of these different things in my life before. That he took me through these circumstances so that I would actually come to know his power and his presence. 
How do you know? How do you experience conversion? Number one, you meet the resurrected Jesus. Number two, you realize he's been working on along. Number three, you come to realize the truth about yourself. You come to realize the truth about yourself. What's that? Well, look at the verse right here, verse chapter, four, uh, chapter 9, verse 4. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. Think about what's taking place here. Saul is thinking that his fight has been against this religious sect. He's thinking about, he's thinking, you know what? I'm a violent man. I'm an angry man. I'm hurting people, right? I'm hurting people. I'm trying to overcome and save a particular way of life for my people. I'm actually defending them against God. But in this moment, what he realizes is that the main person he's offending is not just the people around him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. When you come, when you come to know God, what happens is you realize that your sin is a personal offense against God. There aren't just consequences. There, just mistakes were made. It, it's not just that. When you come to know Jesus, you realize, I have personally offended Jesus in this moment. Think about what's happening. Jesus doesn't say to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, in this moment, Saul realizes that he's actually worse than he thinks he was. Sometimes people may come to me and say, man, I just really feel like I've sinned and it's affected a lot of people. And biblically speaking, sometimes the answer is, actually, dude, your sin is actually worse than you think it is. Your sin actually was not only against people, it was against God himself, against Jesus. You see, when you come to know Jesus, what happens is you realize the truth of who you are. But part of that truth is not only that you're worse off than you thought you were, but you're actually better also than you dared hope. You see, in this particular text, you see that Jesus identifies himself with the church. Part of what happens when you become a Christian is that when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees the work of Christ on your behalf. So Jesus can say about the church, why are you persecuting me? Right? When you come to know Jesus, you're adopted into his family. You receive his righteousness and forgiveness. You're right standing before the Lord. You become an heir to his promises. This is incredible. It's powerful. It's greater than what you thought was possible. You came to Jesus for some solution, but what Jesus did is he saved you. He gave you a new life. This is what God does. Not only do you realize that you're worse off than you were, but actually you have a greater hope than you thought was possible. This is what happens when you become a Christian. And the good news for you and for me is that no matter what you've done in this place, it doesn't disqualify you from the grace of God. Saul was a murderer of Christians. He says of himself that he is the chiefest of sinners. He is the worst of them all. If you're here and you grapple with sin, there's something that's holding you back and you feel like you cannot, you cannot for some reason come to know the grace of God. I have good news for you. That sin does not disqualify you from the grace of God. The adultery doesn't disqualify you. Your addiction doesn't disqualify you. 
whatever you've done in the past that doesn't disqualify you from experiencing the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. Because if he did it for Paul, he can do it for you. Have you come to the truth about who you are? Do you know that you're actually a sinner before the Lord? And do you also know that you have more hope than you can ever imagine? There was a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon who tells a story that captures this so well. He says there was a man and his wife who lived in Britain and who were really evil people. And they have a son and uh, because they're terrible parents and terrible human beings, uh, there's a family that actually adopts them. And he grows up in this family and, and does extremely well. But the parents, over time, instead of getting better and getting help, they actually get worse. And the father is so consumed with hate and anger that he becomes a highwayman. In other words, he becomes a robber that would mug people on the streets for money. And one day, he's so angry Far off into the distance, he sees a man walking toward a particular bridge, a young man who seemed well-dressed. He had the stench of wealth in him, according to this man. He becomes angry, all these wealthy people making my life miserable. And his violence consumes him, and he steps onto the man, and he kills him. The man is apprehended by the police, and he's taken to jail, and at jail, he realizes this. That the young man that he had killed, guess who it was? It was his own son that had come back. He had grown up. He had made something of himself. He had become disciplined and was coming back to save his family, to give them money, to help them start it in a new direction. At that moment, the father realized that he killed his own redeemer. And you see, what happens to you and to me is that when we experience conversion when we become Christians. You know what we realize? That you and me, because of you and me, we have put our Redeemer on the cross. It was our sin that put him there. You come to realize the truth about who you are. Have you been spiritually awakened to that truth? Have your eyes been opened to that? You see, the, the closer you get to the light of God, the more you realize, wow, I'm more sinful than I thought. But then at the same time, I have more hope than I ever dared believe. That's how you know. You begin to see more of the reality of God. Number four, what you realize in conversion is that God uses other people in your story. God uses other people in the story. I don't want you to miss this. It could have happened that Saul <clears throat> just would get converted and that God would explain everything to him right there, right there. Right? In that moment. He's done it in the Bible. At least at one other point, it's a really scary text in Daniel where there's like a hand writing on the wall, everything that's happening. That's God. Essentially doing it all himself. But for some reason, in his sovereign will, what he does is he chooses to use you and me in order to be a part of the work of redemption in the world. It's incredible. He uses people in our story. Praise God. Have you experienced that? When you came to know the Lord, there was somebody perhaps that shared the gospel with you, somebody who displayed the love of Jesus. There was another person, right, that was part in that chain of seeing you come to know Jesus. And in this story, it's no different. In verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he replies with the same words, <laughs> 
that Isaiah the prophet replies with in Isaiah chapter 6. You know what he says? Here I am. Here I am, Lord. In other words, I'm available. Use me. I'm available. Ananias was available. Part of the glory of God in conversion is realizing that he gets to use you and me in his plan. We get to be used in an extraordinary way by just taking ordinary steps of obedience. That's what happened to Ananias. God didn't call Ananias to be important. He just called him to be faithful. The story of Ananias is not one where he's standing up in front of thousands of people and everybody comes to know Jesus. No. Ananias was one man, and he obeyed God in one area of his life, and he shared the gospel with one person who then God used to save millions. That was Paul. Do you feel the same way as Ananias? Listen, God didn't call you to be important. He called you to be obedient. He called you to be faithful. Are you available today? Are you available? Have you made yourself available? If you're going to give him praise, give it all you got. You know what I'm saying? And some of you may look at this text and you're like, dude, you know what? I, I, I mean, I think I've experienced conversion, but I look at the life of Paul and Ananias and I'm like, dude, I'm not there. And part of the reason you're not there and part of why it's important to read and receive the word is because today you're reminded. You're reminded of what God has done in your life. You're reminded of what your mission is, that your mission is to be available to God and to be able to do what he commands you to do. Are you available? Are you are, like Ananias? Maybe some of you today, what you actually need to do is say, here I am, Lord. God, forgive me for, for trying to take control of every situation in my life. Here I am. Are you there today? Because God wants to use you in the work of redemption of other people. I believe that God wants to use this church in order to do that, to lead people, to discover and display the reality of Jesus here in Miami and around the world. God has called us to do that. If we would just be faithful and obedient, man, can you imagine what he could do at your work, in your family, in your own life? Are you available? See, God involves people in your story of conversion, and I'm going to give you one more, okay? Number one, you have an encounter with him. How do you know that you're converted? You have an encounter with the risen Jesus. Number two, you realize that the fingerprints of God are all over your life. Are you there? Number three, you realize the truth about yourself. Number four, you realize that God involves other people in your story. And then finally, you obey God and you walk in your new purpose. You obey God and you walk in your new purpose purpose. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> As the scales fall off of Paul's eyes, what a picture. As the truth, right, of God is unveiled before him and he begins to see. You know what he does? He obeys immediately. Immediately. He gets baptized, it says in the text. He gets baptized. The first type of obedience for a Christian, if you're here, is to get baptized. If you've trusted in Jesus and you haven't done that, I want to encourage you today to take that step of obedience. It happens here in the text literally right away. He encounters the risen Jesus and he doesn't think about it for three years. He does it immediately. He obeys without delay. And he begins to walk in his new identity and his new purpose. He gets baptized, and it says in the text that immediately he starts proclaiming the good news. He starts proclaiming the good news. He's like, man, Jesus is the Son of God. What a change in his life. It's incredible that Saul's past 
didn't disqualify him from the grace of God, but also it didn't disqualify him from God using him in the future. There's a difference there. There are people that sometimes say, you know what? I believe that God can save me. I believe in the powerful grace of God. But perhaps you're here and what you feel is you feel damaged. You feel like damaged goods. He can save me, but I don't know if he can use me. But what do we learn in this text? Nobody is past being not only saved by the grace of God, but also being used mightily by God. In fact, the greater your brokenness, sometimes the greater ways that God uses you. Look at this quote. God took the greatest enemy of the church with the blood of God's saints on his hands, and he put him before kings with the salvation of the world on his lips. God loves to take the broken things of this life and use them for his glory. If you're here and you feel broken, I have good news for you. You are a perfect candidate to be used by God in incredible ways. What you must do is listen to his voice, be obedient, and walk in your purpose. Are you walking in obedience today? Have you taken those steps of obedience in his life? That's why the cross is so amazing. That's why Jesus' love is so unimaginable. Because we're far worse than we thought, but we have more hope than we can ever imagine. So, have you had an encounter with him? Have you had an encounter with the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? Has he shown you himself in the word through other people? Through a worship service, through the proclamation of his word, have you experienced his love? Have you had an encounter with God? Have you realized the truth about yourself? Do you see the fingerprints of God working in your life? Maybe some of you, you, you find yourself here because you realize God has been working in your life for this very moment for you to confirm that it wasn't just feels that got you to this place. It was his hand. And that he's got a plan and a purpose for your life because even though you are a sinner, God sent his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin, rose again on the third day so that you can have life. Amen. Have you experienced that he wants that for you? In the last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, we read this. Both the spirit and the bride, that's the church, say, come. Let anyone who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. God wants us for us to both experience his grace and to be agents of his grace. And I pray that you would experience that today.